welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 6. Bodies and Words. Um, the reason I'm interested in the role of the body is that a lot has changed between classical Freudian psychoanalysis and more contemporary work called object relations theory and self-psychology. And so I'm going to tell you how they differ from Freud, and then I'm going to illustrate object relations theory by giving an example from Harry Gumtrip, who's um, one of my favorites. Then I'm going to give you some views of perversity because it's changed a lot since Freud's time. Then I want to look at the role of bodies and words on the web. Do we leave the body at the screen when we have internet relationships? Are words used in different ways when we're on the web? And does the web promote perversity? So those are some of my favorite questions. And I'm jumping up and down, and you know what that means. Okay, okay so language, desire, and bodies. Um, Words have a very unusual role in psychoanalysis because, as you recall from that diagram I showed you last week, where there's the stimulus coming in from the world and then there's a series of mnemic traces and then the stimulus gets to the pre-conscious and then it gets to the conscious. Well, at that moment where the stimulus is zipping along to the pre-conscious, one of the things that determines whether it gets from the pre-conscious into the conscious is whether or not the representation of the thing, the Dingvorstellung, comes into connection with a word representation, a Wortvorstellung. And, and you know the sense, if you can find words to say something, it becomes much more conscious, much more memorable, much more part of you. So it means that when we are able to, to convey things in words, usually that we're conscious of them, and that we're aware of them, we're able to share them. That sounds straightforward, doesn't it? Sounds like they're conscious. But it's not that simple, unfortunately. Lang Lacan sees language as very, very powerfully self-constitutive. He says, I'm not a poet. I'm a poem being written. In other words, I'm not in control. And that's an interesting thing, because if you think putting words to something makes it conscious, and if I'm got them in words, I'm consciously aware of them, then, you know, I should be in control of that process. But in a sense, it's not readily, consciously directed. That kind of capacity to make links between bodily signals and putting those bodily signals into words, sure, that's part of what makes things conscious, but you can't really always direct that process. I mean, if you could always direct that process, we wouldn't make twits of ourselves by saying the very thing we don't want to say at a party or, you know, blundering or giving ourselves away. <clears throat> and, of course, we know words run away with us. Our language reveals a lot more than we ever intend it to. And Adam Phillips has got this lovely line about the unconscious. He says, the unconscious is that which joins in without ever fitting in, okay? It's part of what you say. But it's not always entirely appropriate, or it's not always what you meant to say. Now, Freud says, this is the way it is. We're not masters of our own mind by any means. We're lived by the id, and he embraced that. Das S was the word that he used in German before Strachey translated it into the id in English, or Greek, actually. So Freud says, I am lived by it, das S, the it. And Harry Guntrip, who's an object relations theory, absolutely loathed this notion. And this is Guntrip 
pouring hot oil and bile all over Freud, basically. I still quite like Guntrip. I like people that are passionate. I don't care if I disagree with them. Do you know what I mean? So Guntrip says Freud's deterministic view of the drives meant that psychoanalysis began with a defective realization of the importance of the concept person. Okay? Wrong. <laughs> like, Freud really knew the importance of the concept person. I mean, the existentialists were around, you know what I mean? But Freud wanted to give a very different take on persons. He thought that persons were constituted by subpersonal processes, and if they were lucky and had optimal circumstances, a reflecting sen sense of self arose, or an ego, that was able to calibrate and coordinate and get things to work together and roughly move in the same direction. But he certainly didn't think you were born whole and good and self-reflectively aware. He thought these were developmental achievements. You were born capable of eating your mum, you know, sleeping with your father, murdering, etc. In other words, a lot of what makes us human, he saw as a developmental achievement, as a cultural achievement. So Harry Guntrip's just incredulous. He said, you know, Freud could take the term id from Grodeca, who wrote, and it's Grodeca who says this, we should not say I live, but I am lived by it. And Harry Guntrip says, this completely destroys the unique and responsible individuality of the person. Well, it doesn't destroy it. It just doesn't assume that it's there from the start. In other words, it assumes that uniqueness is a developmental achievement, that res being responsible is a developmental achievement, and coming to be a whole, full, unitary, integrated person is a developmental achievement, and one that not all of us manage. I don't know about you, but some days I'm not that integrated, okay? So language runs away with us. The it lives through us. Desire can drive language in unconscious ways. And psychoanalysis relies on that fact. It uses that fact. Psychoanalysis is completely aware that the connection of words to experience occurs much faster than your conscious awareness. Things are in language before you know it. Ah, oh, God, why did I say that? But that's exactly what permits the talking cure to happen. Because if by free association we can get at your unconscious processes and we can see what really matters for you and what you're moved by and motivated by, then we can work with that. So psychoanalysis is hopeful. It wants you developmentally to get to a position in life where you're able to use words rather than enactments. Okay, so enactments I see as quite different from acting out. They're used interchangeably a bit in contemporary writings, but I find some writers who use them differently, so I define them differently. For me, an enactment is something that's in my movement or in my way of being, but it's never been in language. Okay, it's never been in language. And it's an enactment. So, for instance, if you've got a child that has never been hurt, ever, and you see a wasp on its head and you go very quickly to get the wasp off the child's head, the child doesn't flinch. Okay? It doesn't flinch because it's never been hurt. You know, it's never been smacked on the head by someone. So it doesn't expect that contingency, and so it's calm in the face of it. Now, that's a kind of enactment. Whereas the person who flinches 
at loud noises or something like that. That's an enactment that this person has come to expect being acted upon in a fear-inducing fear way. <clears throat> and if you see that working therapeutically, it, it reveals a lot to you about the history of that person. Not, not precisely the history of that person, but you start to get some broad brushstroke ideas. Whereas acting out might be, um, I really like someone, they don't like me, they've kind of rejected me, um, and so as a way of both expressing my like for them and my wish to punish them, I sort of walk up to them in the playground at school with some bright red lipstick and say, oh, you've got such beautiful lips, you make a beautiful girl, let me put this lipstick on you, right? Now, that's that's acting out big time, right? You're kind of shaming, humiliating person. You're being actually quite aggressive, possibly, depending on how you're doing it. And the action itself is conveying both your like for that person. You want to be close, you want to touch their face, put things on them, but also you're doing it in a way that's aggressive and painful. So it's kind of, it's actually acting out a conflict that you've got within you. And the way that you pick actings out are when someone acts out of context, like that's pretty wild in the playground, and out of character, especially if you're actually quite a mild-mannered person, and you'd never do this to somebody that you fancy. Okay, so psychoanalysis wants you to use words so that the body doesn't have to speak, and, and quite literally in enactments or acting out, or in conversion symptoms. Now, if you want to be a good poker player, okay, or a good therapist, or a good negotiator, or a good friend if your friend's telling you something that you disapprove of, you want to be able to know the state you're in, but not necessarily uh, have it go out expressively through your body. You want to be able to achieve what's called a reflective encounter, with your desire. And that's the hallmark of good negotiators and good therapists. They still get the information, they still get the signals from their experience, but they don't necessarily splash it out there into the interpersonal world. Okay. Now, what I'm fascinated by the web and by watching, because I'm old, so I've seen the web kind of, you know, evolve and I've seen the way language is used on the web evolve and all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of fascinated by it because, you know, you sort of think of language, you use language instead of acting out. But what the web does is you use language as a way of acting out. So I kind of, I call it talking out on the web because sometimes language regresses. It becomes more like action. And you could actually, and you'll see that in the um, references that you're reading for this week's seminars, you'll see that, you know, initially it would say, I would like to, to stroke your back or something. And then it's got a little symbol, strokes back. In other words, the words do a stand-in for the action. Okay? So language is quite explicitly regressing back to being more like embodied action. But it's a negotiated regression in that this is part of the way that the new media have caused a social evolution in our language and the way that desire is expressed in immediate form. Okay. So just as an instance now, because the body is a really complex thing, write down three things that come to mind when you think of your own body and don't think too long. Just go boom, boom, boom. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Was it body as part object? I hate my thighs. All right. Or, yeah. Or is it a process that's felt from within? I'm really pacey. You can't imagine who that's about. Okay. Um, <laughs> or... Do you think of it like, I can do handstand up against the wall, okay? 
as a process that enables us to move through space. Okay, um, I um, I have got my father's blue, pale blue Scottish skin. Okay, something about your body that relates to those that you've loved. Okay, or you know, I'm too something in relation to some cultural ideal, the mirrored back body. Now, there's a whole wonderful line of uh, research in mainstream psychology called body as object, body as process. And the suggestion is that the more masculine you are, even if you're a girl, the more masculine you are, the more likely you are to focus on body as process. And that's actually slightly healthier than reflecting on body as object. Because body as object, I know it's a self-reflective thing, which is a good sign, but often it's critical. Like it's it's quite unusual that you're reflecting on your body to go, oh, I can you know really do localized movements with my shoulder as modern dance requires. It's usually much more critical. So, in other words, each of us have written probably very different things down, and that's revealing of how we've come to colonize our body. Because yes, it's a brute biological fact, but how you come to live in it and how you come to experience it mentally and psychologically, how you valorize it, what bits are good and bad, that's something that's culturally acquired and culturally flexible, so you can change that. And some people have very skilled ways of inhabiting their body. When you see amazing gymnasts or um, you know, fast-paced bowlers or something, you can see that they're capable of things and they seem to have all the time in the world compared to the rest of well, people like me. Um, but what you've also got in your body are sort of what I call um, ghost gestures. It's from a beautiful paper called by a woman called Benke. And she says, you've all got this sort of tacit isometrics, patterns of trying or bracing or resisting and they're there in your body. I don't know if you've ever seen people that are concert pianists and you watch them when they're playing the piano and they're usually like Quasimodo. They're really lopsided and strange. You know? And sometimes even when they get up from the piano, they're a bit lopsided and strange. And you know, a lot of what is retained in your body are persistent patterns that give away how you use your body. Now, it's not just patterns of use. There's all sorts of innate things like ball and socket joints and innate flexibility and things. But you have got ghost gestures that are residues of what you do. And you can pick computer huggers, you know, pretty well. And this is one of the things that we can change via experience. You can either do it explicitly via coaching and teaching that addresses the actual body. But what I think is also interesting if you work clinically with someone's emotions, you often notice that their body changes. People will come in looking taller and broader and more able to take up a bit of space in the world compared to you know, folding themselves away when they first come in. So the body's actually very revealing of how a person has come to colonize that body, how spacious they are. Okay, so I've spent a couple of lectures talking to you about drives, and I've sort of wasted your time in some senses because drives are pretty far out of fashion in mainstream psychoanalysis these days. And what's interesting to me is the psychoanalysts who now overlap with cognitive science or with neuroscience are right into drives because they feel there's very strong evidence for them. But the, but the clinicians tend to still have that same 
opinion that, you know, gun trips got that, oh, no, mucous membrane, please. One of my friends who's an object relations theorist actually said to me, oh, don't talk about the mucous membrane, Doris, it's gruesome, do you know? And I'm going, well, I think that, you know, it's what anchors pleasure, bodily pleasure. Oh, no, please, can't we talk about attachment? And so in one of my um, presentations, I once had a title, No Sex, Please, We're Attachment Theorists. So I'm a bit rude, yeah. But I think, I think it's really stupid to say it's either drives or it's relationships. I mean, that's not so. Of course it's both. Of course it's both. And we've got evidence to suggest that it's both. And so to put relatedness issues, attachment issues, against bodily need, A, that's kind of a bit too broad brushstroke. That's unhelpfully broad. And yet, you know, it has happened. Weston says in his lovely 1997 paper, choosing between the theory of libidinal versus relational drives is like taking sides on whether people are, at root, really motivated by hunger or by thirst. Okay, in other words, it's not really much of a starter, but it's amazing what life these debates get, these intellectual debates, because um, an either-or debate arose around 1983, and it's still going reasonably strong, um, it was portrayed initially as a shift in emphasis from drives onto interpersonal relationships. But actually, sex has been pretty much well left out of the picture. And Andre Green writes about that in 95, and I wrote about that in 2007. Rezoning Pleasure was my paper. And I put it on the web for you. So, of course, development arises due to both. And this is the, the bottom line for me. We attach to others precisely because we need. Because we need. We're born helpless. We need people. We attach to them. And how we need. We need soothing. We need laughter. We need play. There's all sorts of unique things we need. But the truth of it is, we have got these erotogenic zones. We've got these vital somatic functions of hunger and defecation. And there's a pattern of stimulation that we require for pleasure. And that's the way that we express our desire. And in later life, those templates will influence who we think is really cool and who we really fancy and who we can't live without. It will be a, a quite unique lock and key fit, precisely because people end up desiring in all sorts of different ways. If you go out with people, you, people can seem exactly like you and you feel so at home and then, or really unusual <laughs> in what they want and need. Okay, And it's not always easy. And, like, I study psychopaths, as I'm sure you know, and there everybody talks about psychopaths lack empathy. Obviously, yes, yes, they really do. They don't know how to inhibit their aggression because they haven't got empathy. Well, that's true. But we still need some account as to why it is they've got this motivation to exploit. Like, an absence of empathy doesn't mean that you're going to rush out and exploit people. You've got to have some other story about the engine that makes you want to exploit in some ways. And I think that there's an anaclesis of drives, which means a propping on of drives, such that two drives come to function as if they were a single drive. That's what anaclesis means, a propping on or a leaning on in the Greek. So, for instance, when you're a kid and you're sucking your thumb, that's giving you some sort of pseudo-oral satisfaction. It's not. It's sort of pacifying your hunger, but it's also satisfying aspects of your sexuality. So both hunger and sex is being satisfied in thumb-sucking. 
Okay, and with anorexia, food is not food to an anorexic. It's not just food. And hunger is not just hunger. It's about want and need and desire and leaning on others and all sorts of things. So with um, psychopaths, I think there's a fusion of sex and aggression such that there's just those extra little jollies that they get from watching other people um, suffer. And it's a sort of sexualized pleasure in the suffering of others. And it's slightly predatory too. It's like wanting to devour them and eat them. And that's exactly the words that um, neuroscientists use when they talk about the, the absence of a startle pattern in psychopaths. They say they have a predatory gaze, a predatory gaze, as if, you know, they're going to eat you. Okay. So drives aren't simple things, and I hope I've conveyed that to you. They're not unitary from the start. Bodily zones matter. Optimal stimulation matters. You've got vital somatic functions that are attached to the zones. But culturally specific zones... Um, can also arise, yeah. Like certain cultures really love, you know, long necks or, um, you know, patterns of wearing the hair or the Japanese love the back of the nape of the neck. That's called the beauty in Japan. And so there are culturally specified zones and also there are idiosyncratic zones that arise that are just because of your particular experience. If you had, um, you know, a lot of um, tender care from people brushing your hair as a child, Brushing your hair might just be it for you as you grow up. So unique erogenous zones arise for people as a result of the significance that they've experienced with interactions and exchanges between people at those zones. So the message is, sure, sex may be biological, but the erotic is most definitely social and cultural and individual. So drives don't remain isolated, they combine. And that's a major theme of this course. That, that our motivating structures, if you like, our motivating engines don't remain operating in splendid isolation. They end up combining and co-assembling in all sorts of ways. They can combine with each other. And when you get sadistic personalities, um, often their sexuality is totally infused with cruelty, with elements of cruelty. Okay, You can also get um, drives co-assembled with affects. Like if you feel shame every time you feel sexually attracted to someone, then that's that's a co-assembly of between an affect and a drive. Not not a very helpful one, but unfortunately sometimes quite a common one. Also, the manner that people receive your drives, like whether they um, are willing to help you, think good on you for having such good hunger, um, you know, go for it, you know, help yourself, that kind of thing. That's going to shape your drives. It's going to shape their manner of expression. And the thing is, it's also going to enhance or impede how you recognize your drives. Because one of the things I'm talking about when I'm talking about colonizing the body is when the stimulation within you, do you know it's there? Like, do you know it's there? I was hopeless at recognizing thirst as a young person. Like, my, my mouth would be so dry and I'd be going, oh, my mouth's so dry. And people go, well, are you thirsty? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a really good idea. Okay. In other words, there's all sorts of things that are there, but you don't know they're there. You've just kind of overridden them in some sorts of ways. So in other words, sure, we're born wired to survive. The drives are, are operative. But if you don't recognize them, if you don't let them become mental and psychological and give them space mentally, then they're not going to influence you in quite the same way. 
And actually what's weird is if you don't acknowledge your drives, that's the best way that they can act out. Because it's like, great, the mind is offline. I'll just use the motor function to get this body over here, getting what I want. And the mind's going, wait, no, no, stop, too late. Okay, so anger management, it's often teaching people to know that they are angry before they're punching someone, you know? That would be really good. Just to know that you're in a particular state. And it's not easy, it's, because if you don't know how to do anything with that state, it's very easy to deny that you're in that state. And that's sometimes what you feel you have to do. Okay, but also how other people receive our drives shapes how we feel about our drives. If they express disgust, we might find it difficult not to feel disgusted by our own needs. So the effects of reception shape our desire. Now, some people take some people within psychoanalysis, like Ellie Raglan Sullivan, say, therefore, this, the drives are socially constructed because instincts are innate, she says, but drives, in the sense of those mental frontier concepts that Freud was talking about, they're created by how people receive drives, and so they're socially constructed. It's not a biological body. It's a social body. And lots of people run lines like that. Yeah, Freud never uses the word instinct, in fact. In, I think he uses it twice in the entire opus. Uh, but it was translated as instinct by Strachey. So usually people just say instinctual drives to get around the problem. But instincts is much more like what fixed action patterns of stickleback fish or grey leg geese and things like that. And the drive is more conveying that it's a frontier concept between the physical and the mental. So I tend to use drives, but I don't think that they're entirely socially constructed, but I think they've been socially shaped. Yeah, so that was a really good question. Now, one of the things that happen at the level of enactments, you remember how the body speaks? The first one was enactment, the thing that's never been in conscious awareness. And the odd thing is that sometimes your templates of loving, which is what transference is, start to form even at that level. Okay? So if I can just give you a really trivial example. Last night I was picking up my daughter and... Uh, because she hadn't taken her phone, I had to go and knock on the door where she was with her friends, and I felt embarrassed being there. So I knocked on the door, and then I ran away. <laughs> Back to my car. And uh, this little puppy that they've just got in that house saw me run away, and it ran after me. And it's the cutest thing alive, you know. And I went, oh, storm. And it took one look at me and terrorized it ran back into the house because of course it, it saw me as quite scary of course which is very embarrassing okay so what you've got in storm <laughs> the little puppy is oh excited people who suddenly start to run at you not good not good at all i'm out of here you know my dog when he was a puppy excited people running at you great you bound up and you jump up into their lap and they usually catch you you know Different temperaments, different dogs, okay? But, you know, we're different temperaments, different dogs ourselves. And our templates of loving are even at that level. So so enactments are, are sometimes part of your transference. And so the minute someone walks into the therapy room, the ghost gestures, the enactments, you're already starting to see a history of that person's pattern of needing others and how well those needs have been met. I know I'm sounding a bit woo, 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 but I actually believe it. Okay. 
<laughs> Sorry. So drives and ethics, what the main thing I'm trying to say is that the component motivational features of our personality co-assemble and they form new patterns of act action and motivation and that's what starts to make you the unique person that you are. That's what gives you your uniqueness via the co-assembly and the anaclesis. Okay, object relations. So, the reason object relations theory is incredibly important, I'm not an either-or theorist, okay? I'm a drive theorist, big time. Ethic theorist, big time. Object relations theorist, totally. Of course I think object relations matter, but I think Freud thought they mattered as well, and I definitely don't say I'm going to go object relations and not drives. Why would I? I can have both, and my theory requires both, so I'm not going to get rid of the drives. So object relations is about how your drives are received, about the conditions of pleasure. So if you've got to get dressed up in kinky leather and have a zipped-up mask on to get sexual pleasure, that's part of your you know, history of object relations and the reception of your drives, and that's who you are, and that's the way it is, and we're all unique and we're all strange. Okay, so object relations is both a theory and a school of thought. It was a theoretical shift, but it didn't stay theoretical. It ended up being amazingly political. And that's one of the most miserable things about psychoanalysis, is theoretical shifts always end up bringing a heap of politics and ideology and factions and schisms and fights with them, which is sort of depressing because you think psychoanalysts should be more aware than anybody. But the capacity to entertain an idea or to defend an idea and let it go if the evidence doesn't fit is quite hard when your whole life is sometimes wedded to particular notions. So I suggest don't go there, hold your ideas really lightly and chuck them out if the evidence goes against them. Yeah, just get rid of them and move on. Like don't don't stay fighting battles around theories. It's I don't think it's productive. But the politics, you know, Melanie Klein thought she should be the heir to Freud's magnum opus when Freud died. Anna Freud, as his daughter, who had been analysed by her dad, how weird is that? Um, thought she should inherit. Um, yeah, the, the, the whole theory in a sense. And so they end up with radically different schools. Melanie Klein ends up building a whole school around the death drive. And Anna, Anna Freud says, no, let's stick with the earlier model that Freud had. That's the best one. Okay. But so Klein is one of the first object relations theorists, though, because she actually suggests that um, the thing that constitutes the child's psyche is the good and the bad breast, quite literally. So the first object of love and hate is the breast. You don't see a full person, says Klein. Your first object relationship is with the breast, with the nature of nourishment, and whether it was withheld or there on time, etc. So what happens with object relations theory is that it, it's a shift in emphasis from drives and their satisfactional pleasure to the inner world and the kind of characters that haunt our inner world, the residue of people that we have loved and lost, because that's what an object relation is. It's like a ghost of someone that you've loved and lost, but they start to form part of your ego. So object relations are not interpersonal relations. They're formed by identification, and identification is a very emotional bond. Like if you really identify with someone, it's like putting all the emotional eggs in that basket. It's not just an intellectual thing. And so object relations are the residue of lost relations. As Freud says so beautifully in Mourning and Melancholia, 
1917, he says, the shadow of the object fell upon the ego. So some little ghostly remainder of the person that you've loved and had to let go is now shaping who you are. So you keep something of them within you. But it's not just about sort of inner memories or uh, you know, attributes. It's also about how you do stuff. So it's procedural templates that you take on board as well. How to get love. How to survive an insult. What you do if the person doesn't call you back. Yeah? Those little templates are things that you inherit as well. And they reflect sometimes an expectation that things are going to go really well. They didn't call you back. They're probably busy. Give them another call. They'll be there. They didn't call me back. They hate me. I'm shameful. I'm worthless. I'm unworthy of love. They're so popular. They're so beautiful. I'm useless. Yep. Okay. Ooh, hey, a lot of information in that absence of a phone call. But we do that. We all do that. We, we put our templates of loving onto external stimulation. And, of course, one of the things that we take on board is the degree to which there's been mutuality and attunement to the reception of our needs and our drives. So defining the object. Initially, Freud defined it as uh, the means by which the drive is satisfied. And it's highly free to vary, according to him. It might be shoes. It might be women. It might be men. It might be biceps. Okay. In other words, the object can be a part object, a whole person, normative, non-normative. It's important to realize that they're not interpersonal events. They started out as interpersonal events, but you interject them, you take them on board within your psychology. So they're, they're formed on the basis of interpersonal relationships, and they certainly affect later interpersonal relationships, but they're not interpersonal relationships. It's very hard to, to see how they form. But one thing that psychoanalysts do when you're training to be an analyst is you often get assigned to mothers and children and you sit around their house for eight hours a day for sometimes 50, 60 days and you just observe. And you, you try to watch the formation via very subtle exchanges of um, sort of transferential templates, patterns of loving, that kind of thing. You can also observe the attunement uh, between mother and child or father and child. Now, I've probably told you my favorite example, but let me just give you my favorite example again. If you've been in my personality course, I apologize, but it's quite a nice illustration of what attunement is. So Stern, in his book, The Interpersonal World of the Child, 1985, gives the following example. There's a little nine-month-old baby and she's sitting in a room with soft toys and her mother's there. And um, she, as she reaches for the soft toy, she looks at her mother and goes, ah, like this, like total pleasure and reaching for the toy. And the, the ah is going up and the decrescendo down. And in time with the child's ah, the mother does this terrific shimmy with her upper body, like, yeah, get that little soft toy. Now, what's happening is the intensity and the shape and the timing of the little girl's pleasurable ah is being captured in the rhythm and movement of the mother's shoulders. 
So it's kind of like, I'm with you, babe. You know, I'm with you, baby, quite literally. Yes, I see your pleasure. Yes, and I'm, I'm sharing it too. But the mother's not going, ah, louder than the child. It's not in the same modality. The attunement, the being in sync, is revealed by the form, the intensity, and the timing, but it's in a different modality. Hers is movement. The child's is vocal. But what it conveys to the child is, yeah, you're having fun. I can see your pleasure. Your pleasure is real to me. And what else is being signaled? Is it is it a punishing response by the mothers? No. It's quite good reception, isn't it? It's letting the kid have her pleasure. It's not saying, oh, you're a good girl to be so pleased, you know, which is quite wooden. It's going with the pleasure in quite a playful sort of way. But misattunement is actually very common. Like if the little girl were reaching for the toy and the mother went, don't touch that, that's someone else's and it's dirty, you don't know where it's been. Vroom, pleasure gone, shame, okay? So misattunement is very common and it can just be in terms of the, in, the form and the intensity and the timing, okay? Or the mother doing it in the same modality as the child, which displaces the privacy and separateness of the child because what you want to fall out of attunement is I'm a real person, they're a real person, I've got my pleasure, they've got their pleasure, but you notice what's happening? There's a sense of the separateness of self and other. Okay, we're linked by attunement, but it's two separate people who are linked. And if you don't get that sense of separateness between self and other, big pathology, one of the major markers of pathology around borderline issues, narcissism, the whole shebang, is imperfectly realizing the separateness of self and other. So Freud suggests that recognizing that distinction between inner and outer is, is a developmental achievement. Like initially he thinks you draw a really silly line around yourself in a way. Everything that's good's me, even if that includes the warmth of the sun, the softness of my mother's skin, you know, that's me. It's all me because it's good. And the wet nappy and the poo, no, that's not me. That's the external world. You know, I don't want that. Or my hungry tummy, that's not me. Okay, you try to externalize it to take flight from it because you can't soothe it. And, you know, sometimes that's what people do when they don't colonize their body. I can't soothe my anger, so I'll pretend I'm not angry. I'll take flight from knowing that I am angry because I don't know what to do with it if I come to know that I'm angry. So specificity matters. The drives have a rhythm. They change. If you are starving one day, you want a big breakfast. If you come in the next day and you haven't been climbing mountains and you're given the same big breakfast, no, that's not right for you. You've got different drives on different days. And so people need to pick up on the fact that we change our state and that we need things from them. And in a sense, they become other by not being too good for us. You know, there's this notion that I'll introduce you to later on called being good enough. And what you want is a good enough mother. One that meets your every need is not doing you a service, in a sense. Your mother has to be a wee bit late so that you go, oh, hunger. I know what hunger is now, you know. And oh, mum's on time this time. Oh, she's a bit late this time. Oh, so she's separate. She can fail to arrive. Um, and so, in a sense, starting to symbolize what's going on in your body, making it mental, is when the stimulation persists because the needs are not instantly gratified. So you need things from others, but they must frustrate us optimally as well. But what I want to suggest, it's meeting of the body, 
literally the orifices and the social, other people, the physical world, it's that meeting that forms us. And it's the specificity that the drives bring to that meeting and the specificities of attunements that the people bring to that meeting. So it's not either drives or people. People bond with us to the extent that they can really pick up on the specificity of our needs, on precisely what we need now. And not everybody can do that. Only highly attuned people can. So here was how it was phrased, though, in 1983. This is the revolutionary book. Object relations is a conceptual framework in which relations with others constitute the, fun the fundamental building block of mental life. The creation or recreation of specific modes of relatedness with others replaces drive discharge, my emphasis, as the motivating force in human behavior. You see what's happening? This is not, hey, I've got an innovative thing that also needs to be in the picture. This is out of my way drives. Here comes the other person, the person, relations to others. And this is what they say, my emphasis as well. The revision of the pleasure principle opens up the hermeneutics of the drive slash structural model. Drives meaning um, biological impulses, structural model meaning id, ego, superego, to a greater emphasis on the conditions in which pleasure was experienced during the course of an individual's development. The specificity which the drive has lost, the interpersonal context has gained. That's what they're saying. Or more accurately, regained. In other words, they thought psychoanalysis had sold us a bit short and not emphasized the social sufficiently. And I suppose, you know, on certain readings, that sort of seems a bit true sometimes. But I think, you know, the, the interpersonal is still very much there in, in my readings of Freud anyway. I can certainly see his emphasis on um, the other. But so what Guntrit wants to do is not say the manner in which the other has received your hunger need to be cleaned, need to masturbate, etc. It's not how they've received it. We're not even going to talk about a psychosexual scheme. It's like it's totally gone. And now we're going to look at development more based on a graded uh, separation from the mother, or yeah, mother usually, from dependence to independence. So he banishes the id. He doesn't talk about it anymore. Drives are gone. And he says the ego is the whole person. And that's kind of a radically different landscape for psychoanalysis. So you've you've... This is a really costly exchange in my books because you've lost the bodily anchored deterministic developmental account, which I think is one of the major strengths of psychoanalysis. And instead, what he's got is he says we're born with this true self. We've got this innately specified true self, and that has to unfold somehow. And I'm going, okay, you know, that's kind of essentialism. That's really problematic. How would that be transmitted genetically? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not a very biological account anymore, and he doesn't want it to be. He doesn't really like biology. What And what's happened is that the whole nature of bodily pleasures is sidelined, which I don't like, because I think pleasure's part of us. <laughs> and you've suddenly got this drive that instead of, you know, being free to vary in its object, like the object's the most displaceable thing, that's what makes the sex drive so interesting and so readily sublimated and so useful to culture, you suddenly got this drive that's kind of hardwired to its object. Um, 
Fairburn says, he's a, a Scottish sort of psychoanalyst. He's, he's very cool, actually, um, but he's very stern. Um, he says the libido is primarily object-seeking, and if your libido comes unstuck from the object, then it's a failure or a disintegration in some way. So, in other words, where Freud sees pleasure as something that results in a synthesis, the drive contingently finding that which satisfies in the external world, you've suddenly got Fairburn going, if you start just having organ pleasure, that's a sign that you're, you know, you're a, a disintegrated character, basically, that you've fallen apart in some morally reprehensible way. So it's not a great picture. So my picture, the positive project, is that drives and relationships matter. Of course we've got sex. Of course we've got attachment. Of course recognition makes a difference. Of course the forms of dependence <laughs> are, are utterly crucial issues. Now, what you've got with Guntrip, I think, is one of the most beautiful portraits of just how powerful attachment is. Um, he says the mother gives the infant a start in life with as near perfect security as you can imagine. And it involves physical and emotional dependence, but then gradually the, the child develops a measure of independence and can become a, a separate person, but without disturbing that built-in sense of belonging, relationship, security at heart. I mean, that's a beautiful account of attachment, I think. And he says, look, dependence and independence is the basic neurotic conflict. So he's saying it's not about drives, it's not about sex, it's about dependence. And he says the person that one's turned to, sorry, that one turns to becomes the person one must get away from. What he's describing there is what happens when your caregivers are horribly misattuned to you. It, like the, the mother who goes, ooh, don't touch that, it's completely filthy and you don't know where it's been, you know. Um, she's actually starting to uh, be quite misattuned to the child and the child's attachment is not necessarily going to sort of progress in a, in a secure way and there's not going to be a real trust that what they find pleasurable is okay, yeah. And so when... Um, Fairburn says neurosis arises when there's a failure. Notice it's the mother, though, 1950s. Get those women back in the home. The war's over. We don't want them competing for our jobs. So when there's a failure in initial mothering to provide support and freedom and to foster both relationship and individuality, I agree. I think that that's one very powerful component of neurosis. I just wouldn't say that was the full story by any means. What I want to sort of convey, though, is that there's this beautiful notion that comes from Winnicott, and I, I just find it immensely useful. You often have people talking about as though connectedness and agency were at opposite poles, and you have to be somewhere in the middle, not too connected and not too agentic. And I sort of think, <coughs> I want to be maximum on both. You know, this is so typical of me. Can't I have it all? Okay. But I think that if you look at Winnicott, it is actually about having it all. His definition of healthy development is where, for instance, as a child, I'm able to keep playing and attending to my own inner processes in the presence of my mother. She's there, but I can still not be disrupted in my own pleasures and my own engagement with the world. And actually, you know, there are people who, as soon as someone else is in the room, they're so busy worrying about the other person that they lose that capacity to concentrate or read or write or focus on their own inner processes. So, 
you've got to actually develop what I call a capacity for solitude, and there's lots of lovely writing on this if you're interested, um, about being able to attend to one's own inner present processes in the presence of another. And it brings about um, a capacity for aloneness in company. And, you know, that means that you're a real ego and they're a real ego, and there can be genuine ego-relatedness. And that's what means you can be securely in touch. You're still bringing something of yourself into the picture. That was the sixth lecture in the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.